in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Destin Melbarnes, Nathan Lutz, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies and knights, to the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. Joining me today is my good friend and co-host, Chad Robinson, from right here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing well. It's spooky season. And also joining us, it's a three-way Pittsburgh endeavor. All three rivers are colliding. We have Travis Williams joining us again. Travis, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing great. Thank you. Fun fact, Travis, you have the highest downloading episode of the history of the show so far, and that was The Shining. Yeah, you told me that. Um, Seems like I got a lot to live up to today. I know. Yeah, so like I said, you have to top yourself. We'll try our best. Well, got a great horror movie here today. It's got some amazing special effects in this movie. Special effects sometimes make or break a horror movie. What horror movie special effects stand out most for you? Let's start with you, Travis. Oh, wow. Well, I think the one we're going to review today, you know, there's some special effects. And taking into the fact that they're over 40 years old is just amazing in what they did. As you said, we did The Shining before, the blood coming out of the elevators. That was pretty intense. Some of the newer stuff, obviously CGI comes into play, and it's a little bit more dynamic and in your face, but when you take a look at some of these classic pieces and what they were able to accomplish with, you know, cables and, you know, faking everything and hiding props and and elements of that nature, I think The Exorcist is right up there with some of the best. Can't go wrong with some nice pea soup. What about you, Chad? I think if we're talking horror movies and special effects, I have to go with the werewolf transformation in American Werewolf in London. That is still to this day one of, if not the best werewolf transformation in all of cinema. Ah, that was actually going to be my answer, and I do, I'll go with a backup. I'm going to go old, old school, but I'm going to go with the original Frankenstein. Hmm, okay. You, you you say original, Universal's original. Yes. 1910 was the first one. I actually did not know that. So yes. you've, you've It's got me. great special effects. Yeah. So I'm going to go old old school and just say, wow, they did a great job for a movie that long ago to still look this good, but uh, you kind of stole mine. So you stole my thunder. That's what I do. Yeah. That's what I'm here for. Yeah. Now, what's the last movie you watched, Travis? The one I remember the most lately was um, The Conjuring 3, uh, which I actually went and purchased HBO Max to watch. And uh, so that's the one that sticks in my mind most is what I remember the most about my most recent movie. Okay, okay. That's, what about you, Chad? I'm guessing being that it's October, you're watching some scary movies. I did, but my last movie was the Muppets Haunted Mansion movie, which is just delightful. I loved it. If you're familiar with the Disney World, Rod, they have a lot of fun easter eggs in the entire movie and i just love the muppets so good time 
Yeah, sign me up for that one. I was doing a little bit of, uh, I guess you could say, unholy scares uh, movies. I, I did, uh, I did the right from 2011, which is an Anthony Hopkins mm. flick, and mm. it's not as bad as that groan that Chad's saying, but it's certainly not as good as the movie that we're about to talk about today. So, um, it's, it takes a lot of influence from this movie, and so many do. But I had higher hopes. You know, it's it's not The Exorcist. It's not The Exorcism of Emily Rose. It's not on that level. But I can't say you're going to have a terrible time. It's uh, another movie that I watched recently, just out of curiosity, was The Exorcist 2. It's better than that movie. <laughs> what a low bar. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, today's movie, as you've gathered, is 1973's The Exorcist. It grosses $193 million. It's, it's staggering. It's the number one movie on the year. It's a movie that takes the country by storm. It's so scary that people end up leaving the theaters, throwing up, passing out, going into cardiac arrest. I mean, this is making news and people are like, I got to see just what this is because it's so extreme. And it's a sensational thing that just completely took the country by storm and kind of legitimized the genre of horror in many ways, in many people's eyes. So. It comes ahead of The Sting, which is another movie that we covered earlier this year on episode 108. And The Exorcist is a rating of 8.0 on IMDb. It's a little lower than I might have expected. And the critics of Rotten Tomatoes give it an 83%, and the audience score is an 87%. This movie has two Oscar wins for Best Screenplay and Based on the Material from Another Medium and Best Sound. And it is nominated for eight awards. It gets nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actress, Best Supporting Actor for Jason Miller, Best Supporting Actress Linda Blair, Best Art Direction, Best Cinematography, and Best Film Editing. It wins four Golden Globes. It it also makes the AFI's Lit Thrills list at number three, coming in behind Jaws and Psycho. Check both of those movies out. We've covered those both. And and the AFI's 100 Heroes and Villains list, Reagan McNeil, is number nine. So, Travis, this movie is clearly one of those classic movies that everybody keeps coming back to, even all these years later. Had you seen this movie before? What was your background with it? I watched this movie, I want to say three years ago. I started to get on this kick. As a kid, I never really watched horror films. I, I think I watched Nightmare on Elm Street 2 parts of Cujo, uh, things of that nature. But I, I started off with the original Conjuring, and I thought, I want to see some of these movies. I hadn't seen them before. And I started going out and purchasing them and trying to get someone to watch them with me uh, was difficult. I, I actually got my eldest daughter to watch this with me, and the reason why she chose to watch it was because she felt the special effects at that point in time were so below par of what special effects are today that it would look fake to her and she would be able to handle the movie. Uh, so we sat down and we watched this movie together. And there's a part in it that I'm surprised that she made it through. Both of us talked about it just recently as I prepared for this episode. And uh, she don't remember it. So that's a good part. But it is the scene where a lot of people were passing out in the theaters from. So I wanted to know what that scene was. And then when I saw it again this last time, it was, oh, wow, how did she make it through watching that portion of the movie? So even today, I think it would cause a lot of people to 
feel a little wheezy or a little sick in their stomach. Yeah, and coming back to it today, do you feel like it's holding up upon rewatch? Oh, yeah. A lot of the things, like I was saying earlier, the special effects are, yes, they're not CGI, but in some ways they're better because they're not CGI. Uh, the things that they had to go through just to put these effects into the movie is incredible. I Man after my own heart, I love it when people say they like practical effects and doing it for real. There's something that uh, CGI is just now beginning to get to the point where it's really, really convincing. And for decades, we had to go through a lot of people, years of people pursuing things that just don't look as good. And you're absolutely right. Practical effects, they're real things, so they feel real. So this movie feels very real. Chad, what about you? Have you seen The Exorcist before? Or are you a fan of horror movies? I have seen this movie, yes. I did get it to it quite late for being a fan of the genre. I probably saw it 10, 15 years ago for the first time, so I was in my 20s. And yeah, it was one that just, I think I was just being contrarian, I suppose, because everyone just said, oh, this is so scary. It's the number one horror movie of all time. Like, eh, it's probably overrated. And so I finally just sat down and watched it. Yeah, it's great. Okay. Yeah, and to be to be fair, I think a lot of people who haven't seen this movie will have had that build up because there is a lot of I mean, it has a tagline for many, many years, it's the scariest movie of all time. And I can't say it's literally the scariest. There's probably a lot of really bad movies out there that are technically scarier because they they take things to an extreme. And they're just showing you things that are horrifying to see. But this movie is suspenseful. It's thrilling. And it's really well made. And I think that it certainly, I think a better way of saying it is, it is in the upper echelon. And you should certainly could even make the argument that this is the best horror movie made. And I should say best, not necessarily scariest. And there's a difference there. Yes, absolutely. And what scares people is different from person to person. Right. And so... I, whenever I tell people about it, I try not to go like, oh, man, like you'll just be scared out of your pants. and You won't, you know, you're, you'll be so afraid to l- turn the lights off or whatever for a week. I mean, it, it chilled and affected me when I first saw it because I first saw this in a movie theater. Actually, my first time seeing this was when my mom took me to see the 2000 re-release for the edition you've never seen before, as it was called, or the director's cut, which is kind of the writer's cut, really. That added some scenes in for people, but man, for me, I was I was stunned. It was just really uh, it it impacted me a lot. And I had told my mom, and it's like you know horror movies aren't you know they're always cheesy. They don't really scare me, and it's just not something I'm that into. And my mom did the right thing and said, "Well, have you seen this one?" And um, I, I cannot imagine watching this movie with my parents. Ever. Yeah, it was one of those things where. She had seen it before and she knew what we were getting into, but it was just me being down on a genre and a type of filmmaking. And my mom was just, it's kind of like, you know, if you're acting uncultured, you're sitting there like, I hate Broadway plays. It's like, mm, no matter who you are, you'll find one that's awesome for you. Like there's so many kinds out there. Don't rule out the whole thing. And I think a lot of it just had to do with the 90s. And we discussed this in our what's the best decade for horror movies. I grew up in the 90s and this is not really a good era for horror movies there's good ones in there but there's a lot of crap you got to sift through and i, I yep. think that's a fair statement right absolutely yeah <laughs> the 90s is a really rough time so i was coming at it with that perspective and then my mom 
dust went out from the 70s from the horror genre it's just like wow i'm into this and from there i found halloween i found the shining i found you know i i you know didn't really realize jaws was a horror movie initially and i was just like oh you know what i love this kind of movie i just like it to be a good one i think a bad comedy or bad action movie is more tolerable than a bad horror movie when a bad horror movie is bad you just kind of go mm, i'm really mad i watched that it's amazing on rewatch though so we're gonna spoil this movie and if you haven't seen the exorcist do do I, mean, I don't want to build it up too much but it's a great movie and you should definitely watch it and then come back and enjoy the rest of this podcast we'll be back after these messages Welcome to the Flashback Flicks Retro Movie Podcast. I'm Ricky. I'm Grayson. And every week we review a movie from the past and reflect on things we miss, things we loved, and things we want to see again. Yeah, because we believe any movie worth watching is worth watching again. So if you like films, friendship, and a lot of callbacks, I mean, just so many callbacks, then subscribe on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever RSS feeds go for like-minded, movie-loving individuals like you what happens when two modern film fans go back and rewatch all the old classic films from yesteryear to see if they hold up you get the classic film jerks podcast find the classic film jerks podcast on all the major platforms all right we're back and this is your final warning we are about to spoil 1973's the exorcist now chad for those who haven't seen The Exorcist since 1973, do you want to give people a refresher? Father Marin is a Catholic priest out on an archaeological dig in Iraq for reasons that aren't really explained to us when a statue of an ancient demon is unearthed. The father hallucinates an image of the demon Pazuzu towering over him, an ominous sign indeed. We transition from ancient cities in Iraq to Georgetown, where actress Chris McNeil is living on location for a film directed by her friend Burke. Dinnings. Chris brought along her 12-year-old daughter, Regan. Chris and Regan commit the cardinal sin of attempting to contact whatever's making weird scratching noises in their house by using a Ouija board. Seriously, this never ends well, just don't. Regan informs Chris that a friend whom she calls Captain Howdy is who is causing the disturbance, and Chris refuses to just nope right out of that house. Naturally, things get worse. Regan begins acting strangely, and by strangely, I mean lifting and throwing things twice her size and speaking so profanely, Bill Burr might blush. Oh yeah, now there's ghost activity in her house, so Chris does the rational thing of throwing a party. Regan interrupts the party by telling Chris's astronaut friend he's going to die up there and urinates on the rug. Her bed begins to levitate, so Chris once again refuses to call Ghostbusters, but rather has Regan go to a physician. Diabetes don't cause bed levitation, Mom. So we sedate Regan. Burke babysits because, yeah, I'm volunteering for that job, and Regan throws him out of the window. A Lieutenant Kinderman investigates the death and chalks it up to alcohol. Man, police work was a whole lot easier back then. He does go the extra step, though, by consulting a psychiatrist and Father Damien Karras, a Jesuit priest having a crisis of faith. Regan's medical panel determines the cause of her affliction is external and recommends an exorcism. So I'm going to let that sink in for one second, panel of medical experts. Uh, they get Father Karras because he's a psychiatrist and a priest, but feel he's outmatched and call Father Marin to lead. 
A series of horrific and vulgar acts ensue, most of which I can't talk about, until Karis is thrown from the room. He returns to find Father Marin dead of an apparent heart attack and Regan laughing. In rage, Karis leaps on Regan and demands the demon leave her and enter him. The demon agrees, and now possessed Karis turns to harm Regan. With his last ounce of strength and humanity, Karis leaps out the window, killing himself and defeating the demon. All right, all right. That's very, very thorough. And man, it, this, is, this is a chilling one, but this is more than a possession movie. I actually want to start by talking about how this movie is a well-crafted story that's not just not just designed to scare the crap out of you. Travis, I mean, we have good characters here. Do you like the story? I do. And actually, the story is kind of taken by the writer, the original writer of The the Exorcist, from an actual exorcism that occurred in 1949. Uh, He read about it in the paper, got really enthralled about it, and decided, this is what I want to write about. Some of the facts have been changed, but a, a lot of content in The Exorcist is parts of pieces of diaries of the priests that were actually involved in that case and a lot of the things that happened are reported to have happened in this 1949 case absolutely so i mean possession itself is absolutely one of those things where i think it's polarizing i think i I think if you're a person of faith and depending on what your faith is you might be more scared than somebody who might not be but this movie has appeal to go beyond only people of faith, I think. And that, that's a testament to just how well constructed everything is. It's also a movie about a mother absolutely desperate. She has great resources. And I think it's no coincidence that she's a famous actress with a lot of money. She's doing everything she can do as a atheist, skeptical non-believer to help her child. And even if you're not somebody of faith, the the parts where you see her having her child evaluated and they cannot find what's going on. If you have a loved one and they don't really know what's going on and something's going on and it can't it's getting worse, that's terrifying. I mean the first half of this movie isn't about demons. It's about a mom trying to help a child and in the medical field isn't able to help her and that in itself is actually quite a struggle to watch and it's very scary and when you get into the parts that actually are you know stuff flying around the room and stuff like that it's pretty late in this movie that this stuff comes into play good characters are a major part of what makes this movie so great and enduring to me chad do you like the story i do and i think what elevates this from things like the taking of deborah logan and other type of possession movies is you you hit a little bit of it with Father Karras, and it's a crisis of faith movie for him because he's trying to reconcile with the loss of his mother and whether or not he still believes there's a God. And so we we have that crisis. We have a little bit of almost crime mystery with the lieutenant. So he, he's got Lee Cobb is amazing. We covered him in 12 Angry Men. So we've we've got fun interactions with this mysterious death. Okay, yeah, we chalk it up to alcohol, but we're going to dig a little bit and find out more. And we just peel back layer after layer. And I think this movie, based on Blatty's script and his book, it's just, it does everything 
so much better than the typical genre of an exorcist and a possession film or an exorcism film. I think it's really interesting, as you pointed out, you have the Kara's struggle with faith. You have the mother's desperation to help her child and you do have the detective, but you also have this mysterious figure in the beginning, which is Father Marin in an archaeological dig. It's an extra interesting choice to set the table this way. And we don't really know him as well. They make a prequel about him. It's not as well received. And Father Marin is kind of this guy is mysterious that comes in to do the exorcism. And you're juggling four really main elements with four really heavy characters. And it's a lot to ask a director and a screenwriter to keep going and to do all this but it's because it does all that that it's so absolutely rich just as an interesting story because it's made incredibly incredibly well for the pieces and then it's performed well within those parts writing is not normally at this level for a movie of this genre as you alluded to travis let's talk about this movie is obviously known to be a scary movie for many does it give you the chills? Like, is it scary for you? No. I mean, to some extent, yeah, it has a fear factor to it. But typically for me, a movie that I would find scary is something that you could kind of pinpoint your finger on. Let's say, like, Jujo, I found scary at the time. Now, I was five years old when I walked into the room and it was playing. But, you know, it, it's quite possible for your dog to get rabies and... You know, in that case, in some ways, an exorcism is kind of one of those elements where it's kind of really big within the religious community. It seems to affect when you hear about, you know, someone was possessed or something of that nature. It seems to occur to those that have very devout faith. You know, they're not the occasional churchgoer or they show up on Easter and Christmas. These are people that are reading the Bible before they go to bed. People read the Bible when they wake up. So, like, in the cases of actual recorded exorcisms, it's it's really has to do with people that have this strong feeling on that end of it. I think you look at the exorcism case for Annalise Michelle that the exorcism of Emily Rose is based on. They had very deep faith um, in these pieces. That being said, I think part of what makes this movie work and possibly scary for those involved was the fact that, as you brought up, Russell, the mother was an atheist. She didn't believe. So in some ways, it's a horror movie. In other ways, it's kind of a bringing people to faith movie, if you will. It's interesting that uh, you say that because it's the notion of uh... I think it's a terrifying element. As I mentioned, it does, you don't have to be a person of faith for this to kind of chill you because it, it does hit a woman who's an atheist in this and, you know, not believing in it won't protect you from it in this movie. And that's that, I think, automatically. You've hit all the people who are perhaps believe in this part of religion and you've hit the people who might be on the fence when that part of religion who are just religious and you've now you've brought in the people who it's it's a really great thing to do in horror movies you know it's like why halloween like happens in like a like sleepy town suburbs that like seems like a really nice neighborhood it's not safe anymore you've taken something that's safe and you've made it not safe and for me and chad will attest to this i think one of the things that gets me the most in a movie is when you take a child or a kid who's very innocent and you put them 
in the line of fire of like you're fighting to save this young soul this young person and they're in an enormous amount of suffering and you, they they contrast it so beautifully she's such a happy child and you know she's she's a delight and they introduce her to you and then man everything that she becomes is just absolutely terrifying to me so if something so happy and simple and innocent as that can can be turned into something of so much pestilence disease and pain and suffering and just a complete change of everything that that person is and even the notion that that person would be and they're grappling for me i think that's one of the toughest things it puts me at the edge of my seat anytime in a movie where there's a young child in threat so it's just one of those things of like the stakes are very high for me yeah this is an interesting one because it it should check all those boxes for me but i'm kind of in the same boat of i don't find it scary at all i am a christian uh now, obviously, this movie is dealing a lot with faith. I actually have a friend who is a priest who's been on an exorcism. He was kind of in Father Karras's role. Told me, yeah, there are some wild things. Wouldn't really talk about much else. So this this movie as a whole is just, it's interesting to me. I, I appreciate the art. I appreciate everything it does well and the story it's crafting. but. From the standpoint of possession films, they they don't typically affect me very well, very much, and it's it's a little unfortunate. I I do think these scares are you mentioned there, it hits the non-believer, but I do think it's far more targeted towards a religious audience, or at least like Father Karras, a lapsed religion. Even even that crowd, the ones that have the background. To your point, yeah, the devil doesn't care if you believe in him or not, as far as this movie goes, or a demon. They don't care. It doesn't matter to them. But yeah, I, I do feel like it's it's trying to hit that religious crowd a little bit more. Director William Freakin said that making this film made him come to believe in demonic possession. William Peter Blatty was somebody who was a comedy writer, oddly enough, unemployed, and just came to writing this after hearing the cases Travis had mentioned. Uh, and he looked into it and talked to people and through searching through it, it's one of these really strange things. And Karis actually has this moment. This is really great in the story. By confronting great evil in an essence that was confirmation for him that there is evil and the devil and demons do exist and therefore that God is there and that brings him back to his faith. I, I was kind of joking about it earlier, but you know, when I first saw this I was kinda of like, I'm gonna go home and just read the Bible a little bit just for it can't hurt. <laughs> <laughs> Are there any pigs nearby that you can cast demons into? No, but you're you're right. I think there's a lot of as you say, there's a lot of kind of Push towards a religious side to it, and I think some of that's kind of put forward when she's talking with the doctors. I I didn't get the feeling that when the doctors were responding to her that they were serious. I think there was a level of sarcasm to them when they said, "Have you ever tried an exorcist?" I think because they didn't believe, and they realized that she didn't believe. But really, she was a very powerful woman that was really laying into them for not having an answer. You know, I think the line is something along the lines of, I'm paying you all this money and you can't tell me what's wrong with my daughter. 
So I think there was a push, but I also think like they kind of pushed back at her and threw in some sarcasm to it. Yeah, it was interesting. They did provide the backup, though. They said something to the extent of, well, we don't believe it actually works as in there's a demon, but it has been proven in some cases almost as like a sugar pill. Of, okay, well, the patient had some mental affliction, and then they believe the demon is cast out, so they're fine. Yeah. Yeah, that was an interesting angle of it, of how you get the medical community, a, a panel of medical experts to recommend an exorcism. Yeah, exactly. It's, uh, you know, if she believes that this is what's happening to her, then just telling her that you've freed it um, would cure her. Uh, there's lots of cases of people going to Israel and getting what they call Jerusalem syndrome, uh, where they actually believe that they're Jesus and they start walking around and like doing everything that happened through the whole crucifixion of Jesus. So definitely that plays into a role that there are, you know, people that believe stuff and if they believe it and you go along with the story that maybe it will cure them. Yeah, it's interesting, Russell, you mentioned there was a, the guy was a comedy writer because throughout this story, I forget how funny it is. In the beginning, we're having some fun and especially with the ribbing of Carl as he's going through and the one guest is just determined that he's some Nazi sympathizer or part of the Nazi party and he's like, I'm Swiss. <laughs> you know, there's there's a lot of kind of funny things going on here the mom even says well uh, in response to are you gonna marry burke well i like pizza but i'm gonna not gonna marry pizza so it's now that you say that it makes sense that some of that gets to shine through yeah yeah and i think another thing we touched on but is this was a controversial movie at the time you think unfortunately linda blair's receiving death threats this child actress is receiving death threats from people who were saying that she's glorifying Satan and she had to have bodyguards placed at her house, which I think is extreme and terrible because I mean, she's an actor and she did an amazing, amazing job. But the original trailer consisted of images of this white faced demon flashing out of the darkness. And it was banned in many theaters. It was deemed as too frightening just based on the trailer. And originally this was uh, released in the UK and a number of town councils imposed a ban saying that you can't show this in England. Boy, that's great because it makes people really want to see it when you tell them you can't see it. And, right. uh, you know, everybody would load into buses and they'd have like these exorcist bus trips where people would travel to other towns that were showing the film. And it received 18 certif- uh, an 18 certification, so like an M- M17 rating in Israel and Lebanon flat out banned the movie. And there were a number of other countries in the Middle East that banned it. And as a film goer in the 1970s who saw this original release, one guy even fainted and broke his jaw in the seat and sued the studios of Warner Brothers and, and won and got money out of it. I mean, it was just so over the top. And like, you can YouTube this stuff. There's news reports out there of just like, you're like, I don't think I've ever seen a movie impact people in the way that this movie impacted people. And it's funny, today's audiences maybe have been exposed to more. And I mean, The Conjuring's more intense, for instance, and people don't come out of there like, with heart palpitations and like throwing up and stuff like that. This movie really did hit the people at the time in a very deep and profound way. It's probably the most well done cinemagraphic 
blasphemy, I suppose, is, is the phrase I want to use, the word I want to use. Like, what Reagan is doing is absolute blasphemy to the church. That's, please don't go after Linda Blair, never go after an actor for portraying these things. But yeah, it, I, I get the visceral response of the, it's really well done, and it, but it's awful. It is just horrible. And they actually cut it. They had a ton of problems. I, I guess we'll just jump to it of the masturbation with a crucifix. What an awful phrase I just had to say. Uh, they had to cut that by 12 seconds and a lot of other places um, made them cut it even more. But it was, it was worse in the book. It was absolutely worse in the book. So I guess they showed some restraint or the censors made them show some restraint. It's terrifying. I mean, I think honestly, a lot of stuff in this movie is very terrifying. I think the spider crawl down the steps with a mouth convulsing out blood. I think peeing on a carpet in a like in just like saying you're going to die up there. Like something about the way that that was done just terrified me. Like I mean like th- this movie puts you on edge and I'll get more into that in the director but I mean it's so it's funny how the crucifixion masturbation scene is something that just ends up becoming this thing that rises to the top of the pile but I just be honest with you I just feel like this movie scared me in so many ways along the way that that's just one thing for me and there. And honestly, as a kid, I didn't really, well, not as a kid, but as a teenager, I saw this. I didn't really get what was going on 100%. I just looked so violent. It didn't, it, I, even though that I watch it now, it seems like an awfully stabby, stabby, like I'm literally piercing my like flesh and just like jabbing this into myself kind of thing. You know, the term masturbation implies there's some pleasure. So I'm not really, I, I, even, even to this day, I'm sitting there going like, ah, I, yeah, I guess kind of, but I mean, it's awfully violent and self-mutilating really is what to me I see. Like and when I watch the scene, it looks like looks like mutilation to me. Yeah. I do wonder what happened to that astronaut. Like, did he die out there? I need a follow-up. Travis though, this acting, this this movie gets two Oscar nominations. Do you feel like the cast is worthy of those nominations? And do you feel like the actors delivered? Oh, absolutely. You know, I think last time and and we'll probably do this here. Uh, you're asking me who gets the nomination for you know best actor actress in the movie, and there's so many of them. There, there's so many to choose from. It's hard to pick one. I will if you ask me to. But we will. Oh yeah, it's coming. I would say there's so many just great performances and likable people. For a horror movie, there's likable people in this horror movie. Um, probably someone you can identify with. Uh, within it so i i think yes the acting was top notch i i I think the um, director got the best out of everyone there's a couple people in this movie not just linda blair but a couple others that this is their first and in some cases only acting role so you know it's a cast of people that probably are not all that well known some of them are of course but yeah, just to take a group of people and put them into this kind of movie and get the best out of them, and some of them not even being, you know, actors, is just amazing. I completely agree. It's not, when you look at this, you don't think star-studded cast, like this is the performance that a lot of these actors are known for. Yeah, yeah. yeah they tried so many, and this is one of those where it's addition by subtraction or just kind of serendipity of 
yeah, we try and get Marlon Brando for Father Marin, and they just say, this is going to be a Brando movie, so we're not going to do it. Or Jack Nicholson for Father Karras before uh, Stacy Keach was hired. You know, Paul Newman wanting to portray Karras, so they make a joke about looking like Paul Newman later. Jane Fonda, I don't even know why they called her at this point, because she was kind of off the deep end, calling it capitalist BS. So she refused to do it, but you know, there were a lot of people they they thought of, and we just, we get the right cast here. You're right, and a lot of the heavyweights that you're mentioning didn't want this, because again, horror at this point is not held as a serious acting gig. Audrey Hepburn was actually William Friedkin's, the director's first choice to do Chris McNeil, and I think she would have done an amazing job of this. And Warner Bros. supported him on that, but they, they, she would have required the film to be made in Rome where she was living at the time, and they didn't want to do that. It was a big deal to keep it in Georgetown where it's set, and uh, the writer, you know, wanted it in Georgetown, and I'm kind of glad that, that I felt like that worked out. I, I might have been tempted to go to Rome, though, for Hepburn on this one, because she's awesome. But uh, Anne Bancroft from The Graduate was another consideration. Shirley MacLaine, mm-hmm. as you mentioned, Jane Fonda, Barbara Streisand, Gertaline Page. And at the end of the day, Ellen Burson was the actress who actually wanted this. And she aggressively campaigned for the role of Chris McNeil. And she called up Friedkin and told him she had to play this role. And it was her aggressive doggedness that won her the role, paired with other people not really bending over backwards to get the role. So when it is one of those things where if you're interviewing a bunch of people and the person who really wants it, you're like, well, they really want this, so they're going to give it all they got. So that's kind of how Ellen Burstyn got it. And she committed to it. She, she sustained permanent spinal injury during the filming sequence where she was thrown by Reagan because they had a man pulling a rope. And they pulled her too hard, and they, uh, they really hurt her back. They pulled her too hard the first time in a cut they didn't use, and she said, don't pull me so hard. That, that really hurts. And then, unfortunately, Friedkin, he's an insane man. Like, this director's off yes. the deep end, and he's just like, just pull her harder, twice as hard. And the like stage guy's like, okay, well, that's his boss. So he's like, you know, he has to listen to him, and he does it. And she hurts her spine. She's lying there on the floor, like, in pain, and then he's using that cut in the film. So when Travis says this is real... At some times, Friedkin takes this way too far with his actors and not trusting them as being actors. Like, he's evoking true fear and pain in them. Burstyn went through a lot on this one, but as I mentioned, this is what she'll be known for. Yeah, what is it, Travis, with you and selecting directors that just torment their <laughs> actors? Because I know that's how The Shining went down, too. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> Firing guns near someone's head, which, by the way, I never do. If you're ever curious, just don't. Tinnitus is a thing. Don't fire it near anyone's ear. And the actor's getting understandably upset. Jason Miller is saying, I know how to act scared. I'm an actor. You don't have to do this nonsense. Referring to, like, Friedkin would come up behind him and, like, fire a gun next to him. Like, yeah. And, like, it would startle him, and then he'd use that startled appearance and adrenaline on the screen. He definitely would go too far. Uh, you may recall when we did uh, True Romance, Patricia Arquette asked to be slapped. Uh, to get a shaky vibe on this one? Well, unfortunately, Father Dyer, who's played by William O'Malley, to get him to have that full impact of being shaken and upset at the end of the movie, that when Karis is lying on the ground, he flat out belts him across the face and then, like, you know, shoves him out there and says, go. And, uh, you know, it's like, that's abuse. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, he, didn't, he, didn't, he didn't ask for that. So, I mean, Freakin' is a mad, mad. <laughs> 
And that is one of our non-actors. He's actually a Catholic priest. Yes. He's a real priest. So can you imagine backhanding a priest to get a scene? Yeah, you're not um, acting priestly enough, priest. Slap. <laughs> exactly. Or like the gun part, I, you know, there's the story of, hey, where are my guns today? So he'd have a shotgun hidden in one spot and a pistol hidden in another spot. And he would use those to get reactions from people. So, yeah, he routinely fired guns on the set, not just once to get Jason Miller to go. He did it constantly to put people on edge and make them look like they're on it. Yeah, Max von Zedel was uh, the actor, who uh, the guy who played Father Marin. He was the one who would come into the studio and just be like, I need to know where the guns are. Like, you know, <laughs> like I'm going to do my job, but I, I, I need to know where the guns are. <laughs> You mentioned one that really stuck me as like bad. Uh, Jack Nicholson was somebody they considered for the role of Father Karras. That would have been horrible, I think. That would have been so bad. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Father Karras needs that almost haunted, sullen look. And I think Jason Miller's background, correct me if I'm wrong, he actually, he was the reverse of Father Karras. Like he started studying to be a priest. And then he went into psychology, and then he went into acting. I was going to say, he was a stage actor, I think, before yep. before going into this one. This is, if I'm not mistaken, this is his first role that he takes in the movie. Is that right? Yeah, he, he contacted him and said, this is me. This is me. And he gets an Oscar nomination out of it. So, And I say deserved at that, too. And he beat out a lot of people they were, they were considering very deeply. And honestly, I just don't feel like people like Gene Hackman, Jack Nicholson, Pacino, uh, mm. you know, I mean, Walken. I mean, these guys are just not right for the role. Burt Reynolds was another one that, like, struck me as, like, that's not, you know, Elliot Gould. I mean, they had some big names for this role. And I was just like, none of these are even remotely good. And I'm so glad they went and got an unknown for this one. And that was something that, you know that they kind of felt was important you know i mean you don't know when you're watching this who's going to live and who's going to die because you don't know who the big the this not made with big name stars like if you have marlon brando in the film you're kind of like this like you said chad it's a brando film or it's a paul newman film right away and with this you're not really clear with that Paul Newman did not need the number one and two movies in the box office that year. Stay away. <laughs> I do think New- I do think Newman could have done that part well, actually. Yes, he could. That was the one I was going to say. Like, you know, Legion of Cobb's awesome, though. Yes. Voice acting. When you hear the voice of Reagan, it's done by a woman named Mercedes McCambridge, and she is the voice of the demon, and she insisted on swallowing raw eggs, chain-smoking, to alter her vocalizations. She was a recovered alcoholic, and she she asked to have her let her drink whiskey to distort her voice anymore, make her go into a crazed state. And she wanted to have a priest on hand just, you know, to, as she was going off the wagon and going into a dark place. And she took this to an extreme. I mean, we talk about extremes from William Freak and the director, but this voice actress? Holy cow. Talk about committing to a part that you're not even seen on. Right. And she wanted to be tied down so that she sounded like she was someone that was tied down. Uh, the idea is that there's many, many voices coming out of her. And so, you know, between, I guess, shots of whiskey and packs of cigarettes and eggs, it it, it worked. It sounded like multiple people. It did. It, it's worth saying that uh, Friedkin says it terrifies him to this day, her performance. 
And he refused to call her back because it was essentially, you're doing yourself harm for this part. Like, we're not going to bring you back in for the TV series or the TV version. Yeah, and initially she she wants to be uncredited, or so the story goes, and then she decides that she does want to be credited. The ball's rolling too much, the gravity's too far along, she's not credited. And and honestly, it adds to Linda Blair's clout if people believe that that's Linda Blair's voice, which I'm not sure why anybody thought it was, to begin with, to be honest <laughs> with you. There's no possible way that young girl can sound like that. And that is not, to me, negating her performance. She's amazing in the role. They, she had to sue Warner Brothers to get her name back on this, so a little unfortunate. Yeah, it, it really did cast aspersions on Linda Blair and her Oscar nomination. She might have won it had this not come out of Mercedes McCambridge trying to get credited again for her role. Whether or not she asked not to be at first, we don't know, but then it became okay as Linda Blair being credited for another person's work, which I think her Reagan acting stands for itself, regardless of the voice. And she's so good about being likable, and she does that transformation from this likable child to a child who's struggling, to a child that's peculiar, to a child where's like, something's wrong here, to this is bad, and this is really bad, and this is, holy cow! This is beyond the realm of anything I thought possible. This is very, 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 very bad. And she does all of those exquisitely as an actress, as a young actress. And she's enduring a lot as a young person to see these things on the set. I mean, she looks like that. She's going through four hours of makeup every morning, really early in the morning to do this. I mean, this is an enormous amount for a little girl psychologically to take in. And remarkably, she was just like saying like, you know, this is happening to Reagan. This isn't happening to me. And that's how, like, she was able to process it like a champ. She did get injured on the set, though. The bed levitating scene, her spine hit the bedpost. So, yeah, we, in addition to firing guns and permanently maiming our main actress, we also injured a small child. You know, worker safety, not a thing in 1973. Yeah, where she's like flying up and down, mother, mother, make it stop, make it stop. That was real shouts of like, you know, like, I this is too much. <laughs> right. Hey, look, she's panicking. Keep filming. Good, good. <laughs> yeah. Another odd casting, uh, Denise Nickerson was the girl who played Violet Beauregard and Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory, which was only two years prior to this, was considered for Reagan. She plays such a despicable character in that. I'm not sure I could ever like her ever again, so I'm glad they didn't go with her. You have to like oh, Reagan. man. <laughs> Fair enough. A young Carrie Fisher auditioned for it as well. Young Ken Basinger, young Laura Dern, and Eve Plum and Melanie Griffith and Sharon Stone all auditioned for the role of Reagan. So there are a lot of very talented actresses who would go on to have great careers who wanted this role, but I get it. Linda Blair is awesome. Wait, Eve Plum as in Cindy Brady? Or is that Jan Brady? Jan, yeah. It's Jan Brady. That's right. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, that changes the tone of that show. (laughs) Makes you fear for Marsha. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sharing a bedroom with that. (laughs) So we talked about a lot about William Friedkin. I guess questionable methods and the abuse of his actors. Travis... Now, does it pay off? Do you feel like he as a director is delivering an awesome product? Yeah, I, I think so. The extremes are over the top. So the, I guess the big question is, 
were those necessary? I think you would argue probably yes. And I think the product stands for itself. I mean, we're talking about it in 2021 as one of the scariest horror movies, uh, if you will, in comparison to ones that are in the box office today. I think, you know, there's a lot of modern movies that don't stand up to it. So, yeah, I think it was worth it. Chad, what do you think about the job that William Friedkin, the director, does? Yeah, that's a tough question. The product stands for itself, but I don't think I can ever condone physically abusing and tormenting actors and actresses. Have the same issue uh, with The Shining. You know, what what we did to uh, Shelley Duvall, that was pretty much permanently scarring. So, yeah, I I like the product. Could he have gotten it differently by just actively coaching or doing more cuts, uh, doing more takes? I don't know. Obviously, some of the actors resented his methods, said, you don't have to do this. We're, we're professionals. We can figure this out. So, yeah, I, I can't go as far as condoning it, but I do enjoy the product. Yeah, I, I remember Tony Scott being asked to slap a female actress and thinking like, no. Nah. I don't do that. This is a whole nother level of bad. <laughs> right. So, um, you know, uh, you're right. His methods aren't good, but I have to say the results are amazing. And it's really, it's, I feel bad for saying that because, I mean, the actors are on edge. The actors, it, there is a serious, real sense of this. And that's a lot of it goes to William Peter Blatty's writing because the, the characters are well constructed. But if the actors don't deliver, it will fall apart on that level too. And I gotta say, Friedkin does an amazing job of what to do and how to get those emotional responses out of people and then also how to set the scene. I mean, the camera work in this is phenomenal. Like, he puts you on tension. So, right from the beginning. If you think about this, this is an archaeological dig. There's nothing inherently bad that happens. And the first long run of this movie i mean it's 33 minutes before reagan has like these demon faces flashing and that's like the first kinds of like oh this is a supernatural horror that's entering the picture 33 minutes before this movie quote unquote gets scary and it doesn't even take that long from the get-go in iraq we're scared like the camera work is always moving it's a little bit of a trembly kind of feeling and the way that they use those really scary sounding things that just just by putting meditation sounds of another language in there, clanking of metal in the streets of a blacksmith clanking. There's this very hollow emptiness and lack of music in some points of non-diegetic music and stuff that is just really, really scary. I don't know if it's because you I was told to go in and be scared that I was scared, but I feel like even if I went in knowing nothing about this, I feel like I would have become very uneasy very quickly. And that is, that's 100% setting up of what comes later. He puts you on edge. And if you're not on edge at that point, when this movie really hits and it hits later, it's not going to hit you with the full effect. So that long, suspenseful drag, that's amazing. That's really great direction from Friedkin's part. When parts that aren't scary, you somehow don't feel comfortable. I mean, the strings screeching in the very beginning is a pretty good indication that this isn't going to go well. It's not going to be an Indiana Jones archaeologist type dig. (laughs) (laughs) You're in for worse things to come. Right. And there's like this background hum. 
And what that background hum is that's going on is a bunch of bees in a jar. And mm. uh, it's kind of like this buzzing that just puts people on edge because it's a primordial fear of, you know, evolution for human beings that, you know, bees are a bad thing. You don't want to be around when you can hear a ton of bees buzzing. And that's kind of put in the movie as a sort of a background noise that you may not recognize it going on, but it's happening and it's putting you on edge, even though you're unaware of what what's causing this edge. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's interesting. We talked about William Peter Blatty being a comedy writer. This is Friedkin is not really a horror director. He's coming off of the French Connection, which is an Academy Award winning best director movie. So, I mean. He's got a lot of clout and he's a very good director, but he's not a horror movie director. That's not the, what he does. And much like how The Shining, Kubrick's not a horror movie director. Some of these greater horror movies are often done by people who are out of the genre. And I think that that's an interesting pattern. When somebody dips into the horror genre, they bring these skill sets of these other film types and somehow those other strong suits make the movie richer and i'm not saying you can't be a horror movie guy and do a good job of horror movies i mean like john carpenter's awesome but what i am saying is it's really interesting that they're coming at it from an outsider to the genre's perspective and they're bringing their know-how of character construction storytelling and camera work and they're bringing it to this genre and then i think they like i said i think they legitimized horror i think were going to the Oscars and being nominated for these for best picture, best director, and even though it didn't win, I mean, it's not many times in the history that horror movies are elevated into the sphere. We're talking like Silence of the Lambs, The Exorcist. I mean, Chad, help me out. Is anything else get, get this kind of clout? Get out. Get out. Yeah. I mean, it's a really small class of movies. So And Jaws as well. Yeah. That's a still very, very small set of movies and i just think that that that's friedkin's crazy genius scary genius genius i don't want to be around really but that extreme probably pushed this to its greatness and he was very demanding and verbally abusive on his actors i mean if you want to know what this guy's like i was i, I was watching an interview with him and i i texted chad i was like this dude sounds like donald trump like he literally sounds like Donald Trump and like his accent, his voice and method of speaking. And it's just like, he's, he's got an ego on that scale. Like he's out of control with his ego and he's quite a character. And it does seem like it would have been hard to have been around him on a set. And he was chosen by Blady. That was the director that he wanted to produce his novel. Uh, there was another director. I, I forget the name that they Kubrick. wanted in. Kubrick was, it Kubrick? Kubrick was the one who was slated to do this movie. And it, believe it or not, Blighty went to bat for Friedkin. Kubrick wanted to do the film too, but only if he could produce it himself. And he was worried the film would go over budget, take too long to do. Blatty really went to bat for Friedkin. And so there was a standoff between the studio and Blatty. And he got, the writer got his way on this one. Talk about no wrong answers. I mean, and by the way, Kubrick said, uh, great job like he really praised Blatty's work on this one so even though he didn't get it um, he certainly was very praising of it 
This movie is already two hours and 12 minutes long. We do not need Stanley Kubrick getting his paws on it because it would be like three and a half hours long. I just, we cannot get this movie any longer. No, no, I'm glad freaking did it. But what fortune, William Peter Blatty, you know, it starts with the great script. He won $10,000 on You Bet Your Life. It was Groucho Marx's show back in the 50s. And Groucho asked him, hey, what are you going to do with the money? He's like, I'm going to take some time off to work on a novel. And this was it. So, yeah, it, that Groucho gets thrown in in the director's cut. Lieutenant Kinderman says, hey, Groucho Marx is playing Othello as a throwaway joke. But that's where that came from. I derailed you, Travis. You were saying you were saying something about like uh, Blatty versus Kubrick and the comparisons there. Oh, no, I I just think both of them were amazing in the two films that we've covered here. But I think they were the right choices for both movies. It's funny, Blatty talks about... If you see Blatty and Friedkin on film together talking, they're hilarious. They're like a bickering married couple. Friedkin is just such a crazy over-the-top character. Blatty is actually quite likable but very defensive of his creation at the same time. And watching these two people who have such strong visions going back and forth with each other, it is interesting to watch the sparks fly and how they work. But at the same time, it is also very amusing. And Blatty took liking a Freakin early because they went on a comedy movie. Friedkin was brought in to say, like, do you want to direct this? And and Blatty was there and he saw Friedkin basically tear the guy a new one and say, this movie is terrible. It's awful. It's just garbage. I would never make it. Nobody should make it. It's it's total rubbish. And like threw the paper out on the table and like walked out or whatever. And Blatty was a comedy writer, knew it was not very good. And he liked that honesty. He liked that he didn't hold back. And that transparency, that abrasive behavior actually drew Blatty to him. The tone of this movie, though, I mean, I, I can't get off of it. Does this movie like just put you on edge or what? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, there's, there's, as you say, kind of the long start in Iraq that sets everything up. And, in, and to some point, as I think you mentioned earlier, it's confusing. You don't, what is the tie into this piece? And I can remember the first time I watched this, you know, I probably wasn't paying as close attention as I probably should have because I was trying to figure out how the demon possessed this young girl in Georgetown that this guy finds in Iraq. And I was thinking, you know, maybe this is her grandfather and he sent her this piece and not realizing that that is the exorcist. The, the, the man you see at the beginning is the exorcist, the namesake of the movie. So, but there is, as you say, like the point on edge, the guy whose one eye is completely glazed over, right? That's the blacksmith and the dogs fighting in the middle of the desert and all these noises occurring in the background. You know, I think just going through it, it puts you on it. Well, Reagan's going through all these tests to find out what is wrong with her. And to the point, that is one of the scenes that caused people to pass out in the theater. Uh, was, and I'm sure at the time it's not done this way as far as I know anymore, they're doing an MRI on her. And the machines, obviously, you know, they bang and clank now, but back then, who would trust this new machine, this new technology that's making all this noise? But on top of that, they inject the fluid into her through her carotid artery. 
And so they shoved this needle into her neck, and you can see the pulse of her heart as the blood is spraying out the end of the needle. And this is what has caused so many people to pass out in the theater, is watching this girl's life force, if you will, leave her as they're running these tests on her. Yeah, I can confirm that they thankfully don't do that anymore. Yeah, that that was an actual doctor that was working on her. So that was that was what added to the realism of that scene. Yeah, and I think um I mean this is kind of a behind the scenes thing, I think is one of the doctors in the room. He he has a beard. They don't really say who he is in the movie, I don't believe. But he was an actual doctor. Quite a few years afterwards, it's found out that he's pretty much a serial killer. The devil made in him real do it. life. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, the curse of the of the movie, if you will, here's one that's not really brought up in the curse. But hey, the doctor that's operating on her, you know, injecting this fluid into her body is a real life serial killer. I, this the camera work really is amazing. How can it be that going up a set of stairs? or walking from one bedroom into another bedroom can be so fear-inducing. I mean, Freakin's really doing some amazing work here. I mean, this isn't just like cheap jump scares. And I do think they do have a jump scare, like when she goes up into the attic with the candle and stuff like that. There's a little bit of misdirection like that, or like when, say, the church has a statue that's vandalized. That's not necessarily the main plot line that this is going on, but these moments do kind of startle you. For the first half an hour, obviously, it picks up in the middle of the movie, and there's a lot more scary stuff than that. But, I mean, just simply walking down the street with the song Tubular Bells playing is terrifying for some reason. Or seeing a homeless man on the subway when Father Karras in his dream sequence, he's an amazing scare factory when it gets down into it. It's just like, I. it's almost like the movie chopped or something like this like we need you to go from the dining room into the bathroom and make it as scary as possible go <laughs> the lighting though it really adds to it you mentioned tubular bells which is one of my all-time favorite horror themes i think it's one of the most chilling out there but the lighting here is just you don't see it even in modern horror movies i think this is one of the best lit movies of all time and we have great lighting scenes with Marin stepping out of the cab just bathed in white and it's inspired by a set of paintings so they're going after that there's a real art to this movie that just isn't done for a lot of things that you're talking about it's earning its scares it's earning the fear it's not just insidious ah scaring you, throwing things in your face all the time. Absolutely. There's a sense of claustrophobia in it. They don't focus on windows a lot, uh, like when Ellen Burstyn's in her room. Like, it's there. You do get a glimpse of it every now and then, but there's a lot of focus on this very busy wall pattern, and there's this tight sense, and then obviously when you go into Regan's room, that window's open, and just the, the shadows of the tree and the moonlight on the walls and stuff like that, there's something very threatening every time when you walk into Regan's room. And it's almost one of those things where as a viewer, I found myself sitting there going like, I don't want to go in there, but you're taking me in there anyway. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's very empty for a child's room. And the lighting's kind of very bluish tinted, 
I think which plays off the fact that the room is cold. You know, in filming, they made the room cold with, I think they said four air conditioners running full blast all the time. They had parts where they, they would have to run scenes and the actors would be freezing in the room. And they would have to shut down them pieces of it because the cameras were the cameras and the lights were causing the room to heat up and it would start to snow or it'd start to you know there's a lot of moisture in the air from the the coolness but you kind of catch that the first time i think that the exorcist walks into the room and the first thing you see as he stepped into the room is this big blast of breath as if he's standing out in the middle of winter inside this room max von Sydow was saying it was hard to facially emote in such a cold room because it was it was zero not 32 that they that they wanted this thing down to and he wanted again Friedkin wanted the actors to be really cold so that they look like they're really cold and Seedell says it's hard to do your job when you're that cold um which I guess is to that point where Friedkin is pushing them to their limits funny Linda Blair has actually got even less clothing on she's only got like a nightshirt on you know she just says yep I was very cold. <laughs> she says she still can't stand the cold. And, and you look at Max, and it, he's 43 when he films this part. I know. I never knew that, because I didn't know who Max von Sydow was when I saw this in 2000, when this got re-released. I, didn't, I just thought that was an old man. And it's not until, like, I literally think that we were doing Judge Dredd earlier this year, and Max von Sydow was in that, and Chad's like, oh, the great <laughs> Max von Sydow. I was like... Right, Max. Okay, I'll check it out. And I was like, Max von Sydow, the Exorcist. That can't be. He's an old man, and that he'd be dead by now. And I was, <laughs> I was like, What's going on here? And this funny. A little bit later this year, it's just like, Why did they do this? Were they projecting? Like, I'm still confused why they did it. But this is the guy Friedkin wanted to play the old guy. He was in a lot of prosthetic makeup. They said that at the end of the day, he would pull off all this makeup and mask. And sweat would pour out of it. So take that into account when he's stepping into the cold room. He's got a mask full of sweat that's freezing to his face. It's pretty intense. It looks really good, though, doesn't it? I mean, have you seen better old old makeup? And by the way, again, no computer help to retouch this stuff. No. <laughs> I, I've not. I, I'm like you, Rob. I thought he was 77. Dick Smith is the name of the makeup artist who did all that amazing work on Max von Sydow. And also he's the one who did all that amazing work on Linda Blair to make him Reagan, to make her into Reagan, which, oh, that's a terrifying job for four hours to take this. He even said it was such a difficult task to take this very pretty little girl with apple cheeks, a butterballed nose, and to turn her into a demon. It was so difficult. He initially started off and he said it looked like a witch initially, which he said was horrible. I saw some like rough screen footage i think it would have been scary too i think he's he's a very good at his craft so when he says it looks horrible it's not that horrible and then they did another cut where she looks old i don't think that that wouldn't looked as good and then they did uh i think friedkin was the one who was saying like uh that crucifix maybe she's cut herself up with it and that mutilation component to it would come in there also dick smith had taken the idea of diseased as the different direction to go with this one. So the mutilation that Friedkin wanted to bring in there, plus that diseased look, that is what we got with Linda Blair. You know, he said the real challenge was to, you know, work work those cheeks around to, you know, change the face around that. He'd give her a droopy lip and uh, the prosthetic tongue, like that pointed snake 
not snake tongue, but that like like really long tongue flying out of there, like Gene Simmons and yellow contact lenses. And I mean, they even built the vomiting tube onto her face and then covered it up with prosthetic makeup. I had, you don't see it. It's not there. Like, I mean, and I'm watching the 2000 version and uh, it, you're, it has the benefit of being retouched. But if you go back, which I have done and seen the original version, it looks phenomenal then too. Yeah. Yeah. It's as a movie showcase of practical effects. This is kind of a masterclass. One that they couldn't pull off was the spider walk. And I, I've been referring to the scene where Reagan goes down the stairs inverted. They, mm-hmm. Freed can cut this out of the original version, which I think is a shame because it's terrifying. When I first saw the movie, actually beyond the crucifix mutilation scene, this, this to me was the one that like, I was just like, whoa. Um, um, so, uh, that's, that's a stunt double who's like a gymnast or an acrobatic, uh, expert who goes down there suspended on wires and they couldn't get the wires out in the original version. And they went back and cleaned it up for the 2000 re-release. And I, I gotta say for plot reasons, the 2000 re-release is the better way to go, but adding this back in there, that helps too. And think about that part in general. That's what the movie's known for. Like, if anyone says The Exorcist, I think it's even been parodied in other movies, this spider walk, and it never appeared in the movie until it was remastered. I think the other one would be the head spin, too, you know, like where the head turns 100% all the way around. Now, Blatty said it wasn't supposed to do that if you read my book more closely. Like, it was just supposed to turn a lot from side to side aggressively and like be menacing obviously nobody can do 360 degrees but Friedkin got a hold of it and again his job is to scare people too so like Blatty was the one saying like let's take this seriously you know Friedkin obviously is more like yeah flashing faces of demons and you know uh you know head spinnings and you know projectile vomit and stuff like that so I I think that's really great how he did that personally and the fun factor to it I think that, you know, we're talking about it's kind of funny and kind of the behind the scenes things that are funny is when they built that dummy, for a better word, they put it in the front of a cab and drove it around New York City. (laughs) You know, people would see it sitting in the front seat and like, oh, you know, what's wrong with her? And then the head spins completely around and he said people would just go run screaming and they'd be telling the cab driver, get out of (laughs) here because the cops are coming, you know. So, uh, yeah, can you imagine just the, having the fun with those kind of props and stuff? Oh, absolutely. I, I, I love that story, too. I mean, the schedule was for 85 days of filming, and it took 224 days. And, you know, st- stories like that I sometimes think get buried because it looks bad on the director and the production studios and stuff like that. This movie clearly made all of its money back in spades. So it is interesting to hear that, yeah, we put it in a taxi cab and drove it around town and stuff like that. Hey, by the way, your budget's uh, or your schedule's uh, three times what you allotted me to do. So That absolutely seems like a Conan O'Brien skit. Like driving around the exorcist dummy. Yeah, but the contortionist with Linda Hanger was the was the name of the woman who did the spider walk. So many amazing people went into making this look what it did. Mm-hmm. And oddly enough, this movie, because it's late on schedule, it comes out in December. It's a December release. What an unfortunate <laughs> time to release this movie, and it still makes all that money. It's not just a December release, it's December twenty sixth. Yeah. I would so not see this at Christmas. Christmas time. I couldn't do it. 
<laughs> so does that make Exorcist a Christmas movie like Die Hard? I think Chad would say yes, but no, there's not a Christmas tree anywhere in the room when they're singing songs or anything like that. No, I guess not. There's snow. Or at least it's rain, you know, isn't it? Bre- it's just a rainy, dingy, yucky winter in D.C. <laughs> well, I'm thinking, yeah, the cold breath. It, it's cold enough. It could be snowy. Yeah, I think it counts. I thought it was funny. We were talking about things that Friedkin reacted big to. One of them was the soundtrack. Uh, it, it was supposed to have a different uh, soundtrack by Lalo Schifrin, who had done Cool Hand Luke, Dirty Harry, and Mission Impossible. And he hated it so much, he ripped it out while it was playing and threw it out in the parking lot. Yeah, nice guy. <laughs> <laughs> that soundtrack was used for another movie. I can't recall what it was, but it was another horror movie, too. Yeah. It's my favorite time. You guys ready to get into the superlatives? Travis, who is your MVP? I guess you mentioned it earlier. Some of these were very hard decisions. When everybody does their job so well, who do you give the MVP to? I really kind of, I guess, connected with the Jason Miller character. Even his mother, to some extent, even though she's a small part of the movie, she's, you know, she does a very good job. And again, she's not a actress at all. She, she's just kind of an extra that picked up the part. Father Marin was excellent, but I think you have to give it to Linda Blair because not only was she excellent, but she was 13 years old and it was her first movie. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, Mike Nichols was considered for the director, the guy who did The Graduate and uh, Working Girl, both movies we've covered before, but very acclaimed director, didn't want to touch this one because he said, all this movie hinges on a young actress, and I'm, I, I can't do that. It's not going to pull. You can't ask a young actress to do all this. And, I, and if, you, if someone does ask him to do it, it's not going to be me. And he just didn't want to do it because of that. So good directors walked away based on exactly what you're talking about, Travis. And Friedkin did get the right Reagan. So great choice with Linda Blair. She's amazing in this one. Yeah, to be fair, they did sub in some people for the absolutely totally awful scene. So Linda Blair, not taking away from her, but some of those director concerns, they were assuaged by having having an older actress tag in for them. Like the crucifix scene was not Linda Blair. Yeah. Right. Chad, who would your MVP be? Yeah, I'm notoriously hard on children acting in horror movies especially, but I'm going with Linda Blair as well. Her performance is iconic. She did such a great job of spitting this just awful vulgarity. Max Van Sydow forgot his lines. He was just in shock of her performance. So the fact that she can just flip a switch and go into this mode, kudos to her. Yeah, and my MVP, I mean, Friedkin treating everybody wrong gets him knocked down this one, but to me, I would say it's got to be William Peter Blatty. He wrote this thing, and he went to bat to get Friedkin in there. He went to bat to get the scenes put back into the cut. He went to bat against Friedkin on a lot of things. He is a very creative force who is very protective of his vision, and he did handle this with the seriousness that was needed to give this movie its authenticity. So oftentimes I'll say it's the director to do these things. And Blatty had such a upset with, with Friedkin. Friedkin, you know, had him thrown off the stage and, you know, removed. And they, they made men's later. And it's funny, Friedkin 
is in an interview at one point saying like there were certain scenes that were cut out of the movie, small ones that he was just trying to get the time down. And Blatty was really upset by it. And he said like the scene where they say, why this girl? And Father Marin says, I think things are done to good people to make us despair. Blatty felt like that was the crooks of the movie, that that was supposed to happen. Or even how this movie ends. This movie, when Peter Blatty wanted this movie to end, he wanted Lee J. Cobb, the detective, to you know, kind of have this like, hey, father, you want to go check out a movie? Get these great tickets to the movies. Versus Friedkin just wanted it to be the fall at the end of the stairs, and that's it. And Blatty said this movie is not supposed to just be about despair. It's supposed to have hope in it. And the fact that she drives off into the sunset, she's okay, and that there are people who remembered what happened here and that there's still good in the world is a really important thing. These are major things that make it go down better for me. And I think Peter Blatty saw to it and wanted that and was very protective of that. So long answer, but I think this writer had more to do with the success of this than a lot of movies. Good choice. Best supporting actor. Boy, this is going to be hard. Travis. I said earlier, I'd have to go with Jason Miller. I think Jason Miller was brilliant in his role. He felt like, you know, when you think of priests, you think of people that are a little bit more elevated that have that connection with the higher power. And I think he humanized being a priest and, you know, things that he's struggling with and some of the things that he does is things that, you know, everyday people do. And I just felt that his part in this movie was great. And really, like I said, it comes really down for me between him and Linda Blair as the best. And she kind of wins because she's a 13-year-old girl doing these things. Yep, and those were your Oscar nominees, so you're not wrong. So, Chad, what about you? Uh, best supporting? I went with Lee Cobb as Lieutenant Kinderman. I just, I love every single one of his scenes. As the movie podcast, I've got to throw it out to the movie guy. He's talking about, I like to watch and critique movies. It's like, all right, yeah, we should have him on the podcast. So, yeah, 12 Angry Men, he was my favorite part of that as well. So, Lee Cobb. You're going to laugh at this, but I mean, literally when I saw this in 2000 and Lieutenant Kennerman's like, I like to sit down and watch movies and talk about them afterwards, kind of critique them. Like you were saying, Chad, I was like, I would love to go do that with this guy. And like, uh, <laughs> that sounds amazing. <laughs> and the tickets are free. Yes, I would do that in a heartbeat. Fast forward all these years later and here I am. So <laughs> it was literally influenced by Lee J. Cobb in its own little way, I believe. So uh, good call on that one. I'm going to go with Max von Sydow. He's an old man and it's not just Dick Smith's makeup. He looks and he's moving like an old man. I never would have believed it. Like the fact that I had seen this movie how many times and I just didn't know that this was a young man playing an old man. And he's so good as this powerful character of strength, even though he's physically struggling. He's at the end of his rope in terms of his life, but he's he has this amazing presence. Great job. And I, I kind of put Jason Miller in the uh, best, like the front actor role. So I, I didn't kind of consider him for supporting when this came to it. So I, uh, he's amazing, too. He didn't get an award for me. Ellen Burstyn was amazing, too. So, gosh, this was hard. Hidden gem, Travis. If you watch closely, there's cutscenes of the demon showing up. Um, I think he's on the stove when she bursts into the house when Burke is lying dead outside. Mm-hmm. 
in the wallpaper as she walks up the steps. The initial filming of this, just because of the way film was in that day, the flashes of the demon's face are intended to be a flicker. You're not supposed to see them. They're so in the forefront now, I think, because you can pause it and rewind it and, hey, is that what I saw? But it, I mean, it's really a kind of foreshadowing or probably where the Fight Club got the idea to kind of do the same thing. That's a very interesting point. And connection, I mean, yeah. This movie's so influential to so many movies. It spawns a whole genre of movies that imitate it, but that's a great point. And th- those demon faces really got me. I mean, they if you, I wasn't on edge before, I was on the very, very... Like, I was... My fingernails were dug into the ceiling at that point. Chad, hit and jump. I'm going back to my man Carl, played by Rudolf Schundler. He's just fun comic relief. His protests of not being a Nazi while being hounded by the drunk guy at the party. I just enjoyed his character. Uh, my hidden gem's got to go to Mercedes McCambridge. The voice acting on this. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not necessary to take your voice acting to such extremes, but this might have been the only person who Friedkin might have been like, you know what? Maybe relax a little bit. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, recast. If you had to recast somebody and put somebody in their place, it's going to be hard, but you got to do it. Chad. Hi, she was nominated for an Academy Award. I'm still replacing Ellen Burstyn. I'm going to replace her with Dee Wallace. I just, I kind of want the scream queen of Dee Wallace in this movie. Wow. Okay. I also thought Ellen was a bit too harsh. Like, she was a bit too awful. Oh, wow. I I like that desperation that she exudes. I don't think she's going to be pleasant when you want your kid to get help and she's not getting up. Plus, she's a... She's used to getting her way. She's a, she's a Hollywood star. And I'd like, we didn't mention this. I like the fact that if this can happen to somebody who's as prominent as a Hollywood star, it could happen to anybody as well. That was another thing we didn't mention. It's not coincidental that somebody who has all these resources, they can literally do anything to help their child, and she still can't help her child. So interesting pick. Yeah, J- J- Travis, this is hard to do. What would you, who, who would you replace and who would you put in their spot? If I'm going to do it, and let's just do this for fun. Let's replace Burke. Uh, so, so Burke is the drunk guy at the party harassing the, the help and saying that he's a Nazi or implying that he helped Adolf Hitler in, you know, all of his nasty ways. Let's put Jack Nicholson in that spot. Let's see. I, I think his craziness kind of would peel off in that same respect. But quite honestly, the actor that played him he did a jo- a phenomenal job as well. So I don't know if you can replace anyone, but if you are. Let's let's have a little fun with it. Okay, okay. I like it. No, that and sometimes sometimes it takes courage to do that. When it doesn't work, you just you just power through it. So that's definitely a great way of doing that. For me, I'm gonna go to the woman who's taking care of Reagan, named Sharon. Kitty Wynn does the role of Sharon, who's kind of the woman who helps with that. This is a total overcasting, but what if Meryl Streep did that part? That, yes, that is, that is an extreme overcast. Yes, you were right. <laughs> Best shot of the movie, Chad. There's a shot with Regan that's silhouetted in the window as it's thrown open and there's smoke billowing behind her and then the statue of Pazuzu appears in the background. It's just a gorgeous, effective shot of 
the awful transformation happening inside of her. And that confirms that this is indeed some mysterious background that we have with Marin that, you know, he's encountered something to do with this particular demon in the past, which they don't flesh out in this movie. And I appreciate um, it actually left room for a sequel to go into that didn't work out. But I like that. <laughs> I like that they left the door open to look deeper into Father Marin's past. Travis, what was your best shot? I think the stairwell. I think there's a part where Chris walks into the room and sees the window open. Then I believe they shoot to the stairwell and Burke's body at the bottom of it. And the stairwell is ominous. It's got to be 50 feet of stairs. No one surviving going down. In fact, the description of how he is found is pretty torturous. And it kind of foreshadows later on what happens with father Karras. like he realizes that by making this jump and this leap out on the stair there is no way that he's going to survive it kind of looking this up there's a, there's a ton of questions like is this the stair in the joker is this the stair and you know one of these other movies it's just a set of stairs that looks like if i fall down this i'm not going to survive well, I can tell you this much. It's a real place and people seek it out. So the stairs next to this house are a place that film fans and horror fans from all over make a pilgrimage to in Georgetown. It's a real place. The house itself right next to that, they built an addition onto to make it look like it was believable that uh, you could be thrown from the house onto the steps. So it took a lot of uh, elaborate steps on that to make sure that that was possible as well. So. Funny, they actually reshot that house in the sequel, and they rebuilt it there, and then there's another sequel where they come back and they just don't even bother at that point. It's just like, yeah, you know the house. <laughs> <laughs> My best shot is going to be a transition. It's Marin gets a letter in the woods saying like, hey, you've been called to duty to do an exorcism. That exorcist theme, that the tubular bells kicks into gear, and then it fades to dark, and we see Reagan's yellow eyes. And then it's faced the misty streets of D.C. as the car drives up with Marion getting there. And it's about to get heavy. And that transition, it's beautifully done. Much like the one that Chad mentioned earlier. It's like, oh, man, that's great. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and this is reused, actually. In the new Conjuring movie, there's a, there's a scene where the priest shows up at the house and it's in the fog. And, you know, it's it's basically just a homage to the scene from the exorcist it, it, it is to me if you see that picture the first thing that comes to your mind exorcist yeah wow uh, it's just you're right it's on the cover of dvds for sure best scene chad the scene where Marin and karis are resting after they've started the exorcism they're resting in the stairway they're talking about why this is happening to this little girl Russell, you alluded to it. Marin says he thinks the point is to make us despair. I think that was a really important conversation for the two characters to have. It was a nice break of the tension, and it, it was nice to see the impact it was having on both characters. Yes. Now, my best scene probably is the scene where all the stuff's flying around the room, and Ellen Burstyn walks into the room. She's thrown up against the wall. And yes, this does have the crucifix, mutilation, masturbation scene. That's not why I'm doing it. It's just the whole, everything has built up to this. And like, you just didn't know it could be this bad. 
And it's really, really terrifying to see all that stuff flying in the room, particularly as she opens the door and you see stuff flying like around. Like there's no psychological component to making things move, as you mentioned. You can't make beds levitate. You can't shove drawers at people. And uh, I remember being very shaken. I I got out of that movie in complete daylight in the middle of summer. And I was like, oh, man. this isn't enough light. <laughs> like I need <laughs> I, so uh very chilling. Travis, best scene. When Father Karras uh agrees to at least see Regan and he goes into the room and he's talking with the demon and the demon opens the drawer up. There there's kind of a whole part where you realize what's happening, I think, is that the demon is feeling him out and finding his weaknesses. And it lies to him. It, he throws tap water on her and it's screaming. He asks it at one point, if you're a demon, untie yourself. The response is in time. You know, at the end of the movie, she's sitting untied on the end of the bed. So that part where you realize that the real target really isn't her. She's just kind of the vessel that he's traveling in. That the real target is, you know, Father Karras. And that's what he wants is to corrupt the priest and i think that scene was just kind of brilliant even though it's not like a big action scene or anything of that nature just kind of the toying that's going back and forth yeah now what's your best wardrobe or makeup moment travis i think the whole pea soup part and you know the prosthetics and stuff that it took to how to hide these things the tubes are going back behind her the actual special effects guys behind her but you know the rooms nice and dark you can't see it but you got this girl she's in her nightgown it's covered in this green vomit she is just thrown up in the priest's face his sweaters covered in vomit for me where they are destroying costumes obviously at that point but i think just the the amount of work that had to go into setting that scene, the prosthetics on her, the hiding of the tubes, the nightgown, it's just tops. Yeah, and Jason Miller didn't know he was going to get hit with the actual vomit. Like, he thought it was, that was a real shock. <laughs> yeah, and, and there's a lot of talk, you know, we've been talking about these shock scenes where people didn't know in their reaction. His reaction of just pure anger, of being spewed this hot pea soup is what it really is, but, you know, this projectile vomiting into his face, that's for real. That's his real reaction. He is mad when that happens to him, and that's picked up in the movie. Anderson's brand pea soup. Not Campbell's. That They tried Campbell's. It just didn't look as good as Anderson's, so product placement for the podcast. <laughs> Best wardrobe or makeup moment, Chad? We've talked about it, so I won't belabor the point, but making Max Van Sato, who's a man in his 40s, look in his late 70s, that's just astonishing, even today. Dick Smith is a genius with makeup. There's no doubt about it. And I'll piggyback off what you said, Chad, but just for variety's sake, Reagan's face is astoundingly scary. Oftentimes in a horror movie, if you actually stop and look at it, you go, oh, you know, you, you pulled it out of the moment. It's not that scary when you stop and look at it. This time it is. <laughs> um, she's a scary little girl. I change one thing, Travis. 
I know we alluded to the movie's two hours and 12 minutes long. Felt like there was a lot that was cut to make it fit together. In some cases, it came off a little bit confusing. So just to change anything, maybe just to explain some of the scenes a little bit better. Mm. I th- I think in many ways, to your point, they already kind of did this with that 2000 version. I, if, you, if I haven't tipped my hand enough, watch the version you've never seen before the 2000 re-release is phenomenal it's all original footage and they've just cleaned up a few things here and there but more importantly they put back in the stuff that to your point is travis i mean william peter blatty wasn't wrong and even even william freakin and his gigantic ego has admitted as much that stuff should have been there so yep different ending too yep uh chad is that yours as well or do you have another change one thing I'm going to go the opposite direction. I usually go for the shorter, more concise movie. I don't think we need the scenes in Iraq at all. Wow. It doesn't add anything to this movie unless you count it produces a prequel. So you want to see Marin in the woods first time you see Marin? Yeah, I, I don't think having that context and Travis even said, oh yeah, these are the same people. It's like an hour and a half since we've last seen him and he was over in Iraq for no good reason. Wow. Okay. I never considered that, but I guess if you had to cut something, I guess it's less critical, but yeah. I think I would agree with that too, because there is a scene when they're choosing him that they say that he has seen this before, that he's exercised a demon from a young girl in Africa. And like, why not show that? Right. Why show the... Well, I think, I think, I think the fact that we don't see that stuff it sets the tone for the movie. So it could have been anything else, I guess, to your guys' points, but I think that we don't see that and that we, I, I, I gosh, it, it just sets the mood so right. They actually went to Iraq. They actually shot there. Funny story, they had to show the local filmmakers there how to make artificial blood to be allowed to come in. Like they had to teach them film techniques um, right. in order to get permission to come to Iraq, but those are real ruins. Again, they did everything for real. It's amazing. I just think I like it because of the way it, the way it makes you feel uh, to, to lead to the pacing of this movie. But uh, I like a slow burn. I literally forget about that scene every time I've seen this movie, which is about a dozen times now. I, it just escapes my memory. I cannot recall that. I re- There's so much else that's memorable. Well, in a movie I love this much, I, I have to go digging deep. And, you know, it's the 70s, so it's a different time. Smoking was more frequent. But having a doctor sitting there puffing on a cigarette... Something to me just kind of evokes in today's times when we go back and watch that in his office. The doctor seems like he doesn't care as much. Like when he's just relaxing with a cigarette in his mouth in his office, I'm just like, yeah, I don't know what's wrong with your daughter. So maybe you don't have him smoking. Like, like, like maybe have him like rubbing his fingers through his hair, like really bothered. Like, I can't figure this out. I don't know what's going on. They were conveying incompetence in the doctor, but I would actually like to see a little more frustration. Fair enough. Yeah. Best quote, Travis. Hmm. That's a tough one. Your mother sucks cocks in hell? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that's a kick right in the face, isn't it? <laughs> There's so I, many I, quotes you're going to have to bleep. No, I, I think you're spot on with that one. And I think the really spot on part about it is that Linda Blair actually said these things. Like, There's a talk about she might have lost the award for the you know, the demon's voice, but in reality, she's got to say them so the mouth movements are right. So I'm going to go with your mother sucks cocks in hell. You got to add Karis to that because that was the surprise. He's like, did you tell her about my mother? Did well, you... 
No, I think that is the big part that he says, Karis, your mother sucks cocks in hell, is because he's telling him, hey, your mother just died, and guess what she's doing? Right. <laughs> this, this is where she's at. This is what she's doing. Trying to get that anger out of him. The profanity is just essential, though, to making sure like this child is being lost. So, best quote, Chad. Say it with me now. The power of Christ compels you. The power of Christ compels you. I love it. Yes. I don't know how many times they say it, but it's a lot. Yeah, yeah, it's like nine or ten times. My best quote's going to be, I think it's time we look for a psychiatrist. <laughs> That's fair. That, that was one of those funny moments, as you mentioned, Chad, of just like, I can't help you. <laughs> right. We've come full circle. Now, on a scale of five stars, with half-star intervals, Travis, what would you rate this movie? Oh, this is a five. Ah, can't, can't blame you. This is definitely a five. I, I think I went low on The Shining. I think The Shining probably is right there with this, but this is must-see. It's a five. You cannot go low enough on The Shining. Oh, Chad, Exorcist, what would you give this movie on a five-star scale? The man who has seen more horror movies than probably anybody listening to this podcast. <laughs> oh, that's not true. There's got to be someone. But yeah, five stars. This is quintessential horror. This is just a masterclass of how to shoot a movie. Even though it it doesn't scare me, it's so well done. So five stars. I'm gonna be right there with you. We have we've had more five star sweeps this year than any of our previous years. But uh, hear me, like this is to me my number one horror movie of all time, and that's five stars. I just as you mentioned, Chad, it's not that it's just scary; it's that it's really amazingly well done. It's a great movie, and that's the most important thing when you're making any movie in any genre do a really great job of making a great movie this does that russell recommends watching it in a theater with his with your mother can't go wrong yeah (laughs) all right chad you want to help me pick a movie for next time i'd love to well we've got our veterans day episode coming up so we want to do a war and military movie coming at you so this one actually got shortlisted earlier this year, but it's back with a vengeance. Apocalypse Now from 1979. A U.S. officer serving in Vietnam is tasked with assassinating a renegade special forces colonel who sees himself as a god. Option two, Sands of Iwo Jima from 1949. Haunted by personal demons, Marine Sergeant John Stryker is hated and feared by his men who see him as a cold-hearted sadist. But when their boots hit the beaches, they begin to understand the reason for Stryker's rigid form of discipline. Number Option number three, Full Metal Jacket. A pragmatic U.S. Marine observes a dehumanizing effects of the Vietnam War on his fellow recruits from the brutal boot camp training to the bloody streets of fighting and hue. I have never seen Apocalypse Now. I think it's time we remedy that. All right. It's not Apocalypse Then. It's not Apocalypse Later. It's Apocalypse Now. Travis, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you, all the Lords, Ladies, and Knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. We invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you, so subscribe, rate, and review to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a like on Facebook. Follow us at at movie underscore retro on Twitter. Emails at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. And providing and producing this podcast is fun but not free, so we invite you to support the show at our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash retromovieroundtable. Any contributions you make will go towards making the show better for you, the listener. As always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Chat. There we were, minding our own business, just doing chores around the house, when kids started killing themselves all over my property.